Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Pope Francis Generation. Paul, good to have you with us. And we are joined by someone kind of local to Paul, Liz Hansen. Welcome, Liz. Good to have you on the Thank show. You. Thanks for having me. Paul, what is the topic today? Yeah, so a couple of years ago, Liz wrote uh, a story in Crisis Magazine um, about uh, uh, abuse and cover-up that happened at Franciscan University in Steubenville. Um a place where Liz went to school, and that is also near and dear to my heart. Um, so that's the topic we're going to be discussing today. Hello, friends, and welcome to Pope Francis Generation, the show for Catholics struggling with the church's teaching, who feel like they might not belong in the church anymore, and who still hunger for a God of love and goodness. Your hosts are me, Paul Fahey, a professional catechist. And I'm Dominic, someone who needs catechesis. Together, we're taking our own look at the Catholic Church, her teachings and practices from three views that changed our world. And those are the uh, Kregma, the Doctrine of Theosis, and the Teachings of Pope Francis. Together with you, we're the Pope Francis Generation. Yeah. So we're here with uh, with Liz today. Um, she graduated from Franciscan University of Steubenville in 2008 with majors in English and Theology. Her and her husband, Luke, met at the university, uh, met in the university's Honors Great Books program. They raise four kids in Michigan, and uh, she writes... Uh, for the Magnificat, Columbia, Plow, Crocs, and Femme Catholic, and our local faith magazine, and maybe more. Um, but yeah, we're really happy that you're here, Liz. Thank you for having me. Um, so just uh, as um, a general heads up uh, to listeners, this discussion will include um, talk of, about sexual assault and abuse and cover-up. Um, yeah, that's the, the main focus and something that, uh, in the past couple of years, I felt like, uh, the Lord has drawn me into, uh, more discussions like this as well as discussions of, and that's where our conversation is going to go today of, um, how do we continue to exist and thrive in a church where this is a part of a part of the reality of our church. So, um, yeah, that's why we're having this discussion today. Um, so I first heard of Liz a couple of years ago. She wrote an article, as I said, for Crisis Magazine, and that was titled Franciscan University and its Friars Face a Reckoning. Um, I really liked what she said in that, and I looked at her bio, and it said she was in Lansing, Michigan, which is about half hour from my house, and I probably reached out I probably reached out to you on Twitter. Uh, that's probably what I did. And I was like, hey, we're basically neighbors. Um, uh, since then, I think one of your kids went to my wife's uh, mm -hmm. painting classes past yep. summer. And I was just I was just telling Dominic, you, you and your family made us really yummy pork tacos after uh, our new baby was born a few months ago. Um, so you've had us, had us over to your house, too. I think we had shrimp kebabs. Yeah, uh, you were. Yeah, you're on top with what you eat. <laughs> the, our relationship has revolved. Around, it was memorable. <laughs> yeah, it's revolved around food in the past few months. Um, but yeah, uh, your article was written a couple of years ago, but this story has continued to be in the news with more information coming forward um, more recently in, the, in about the past six months. So, um, yeah, I guess that's why I want to start. Um, there's any more of an introduction you want to give about yourself and how did you come to write this article for crisis a couple of years ago? Okay. Um, 
Yeah, like you said, my husband and I met uh, at Franciscan. We graduated in 2008. Um, we were super involved on campus, did everything. You know, I was editor of the student paper. We were coordinators of our households, which are um, they're kind of the university's um, alternative to sororities and fraternities um, based in some sort of spiritual charism. Uh, you pray together, you do commitments together. Um, and actually that involvement was probably my um, one of my closest connections to this priest that we're going to be talking about, uh, Father David Morier. He was the head of households um, during part of the time that we were there. So we would be with him a lot, um, leading retreats for these household leaders, kind of checking in with us to see how our groups were doing stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so is it fair to say that Francisco University, um, that, that that's an important part of your life if you met your husband there? Yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so met, yeah, met my spouse, met the people that um, I still consider my closest friends. Um, and there are people who I've become closer to since then who, you know, we may have been there at the same time and didn't really talk to each other and then have reconnected. And it's that automatic shared experience and shared formation, you know, like you, you were there when this happened, you, you know, you heard those same homilies, you were, you went through these same classes. There's um, a really immediate shared bond um, yep. and understanding. So, yeah. And I grew in my faith a lot. Like I don't, I don't regret the years that I spent there and the way that it, um, I don't, it formed me in my adult faith, for yeah. sure. And, and Franciscan, um, and the, I mean, the, this is my perception. It, it It is a real, like it has a place of prominence in um, Catholicism in the United States. Because um, there's all the people who, who went there. And, and, and I didn't go there, but through high school, I went to, I mean, I went to five of their high school youth conferences through high school. And then have chaperoned almost as many. Um, as a young adult. And um, I mean, my my own personal like conversion happened at one of one of these youth conferences. And I, I'll be in conversations with people I've never met before. And we'll be talking about faith stuff. And we'll talk about the youth conferences. And it's happened multiple times where it's been like, oh, what summer did you go? Oh, 2007. <laughs> oh, I was there when this speaker was there. Um, like there are thousands and thousands of Catholics um, who have been through those conferences and, and that like, there's still some of that, like you talked about shared experience, different than being mm -hmm. a student there, but still like where Franciscan is, um, has a place of prominence and more than fondness, a place of importance for a lot of Catholics yeah. in the United States. I think I saw some statistic, um, that was polling seminarians, maybe they were already ordained, but it was asking them like what kind of formation they had, you know, in their teenage years and what events or, you know, what kind of ministries may have planted seeds in their vocation. And like a surprising number had said, yeah, Steubenville conferences were a part of growing up. Yep. So yeah, they're, they're important and they're integral yeah. to the, yeah, the, what we see flourishing in the church. Yeah, and um, I think that adds weight to this particular story. Um, so you had said um, there, there's a story with Father Morier. Um, 
And I know bits and pieces of that story. You've written about this story and you've kept up on it more than I have. Um, so yeah, uh, can you tell us what, um, what happened? What information do we know? And why is it important? Right. So um, the news stories that are out there um, are pretty straightforward. I think you were going to link to a Pillar article. Um, Correct. And, release this. and your article in Crisis as well. We'll link to okay. both of those. Yeah. So um, I think, so I was there 2004 to 2008. So our times um, overlapped a bit. But um, Father Morier was in contact with a female student uh, from 2006 to 2013. Um, he had taken her on as a spiritual director. Um, she had come to him deeply troubled um, from a broken household. Like many, honestly, of my, I had quite a few friends who were similar um, in a similar position. Um, I'd kind of come to school from broken families um, seeking healing and they would end up with him. Uh, he kind of had a reputation for being the priest who would offer healing prayer and meet with you regularly. So um, yeah, this was one of them and he had become, he essentially groomed her over the years, um, convinced her that she was possessed um, and would do deliverance uh, sessions and exorcisms on her. Um, kind of with um, members of the, the university community and like the local charismatic community. And it was under, in the context of those sessions that sexual abuse occurred between, from him. So um, in 2018, she came to the police um, and they found her allegations credible and they opened an investigation. And in 2021, which is when the news broke, he was charged with rape and sexual battery. Um, and then about a year later, so last spring, uh, he pled guilty. Uh, he took a plea deal and um, was sentenced to I think five years of probation. Um, and, and that all happened. Oh, so th that news broke in 2001. That's when your article came out. 2021. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. 2021. Um, and then um, uh, there's a Catholic journalist, Jen Morrison, who has been, um, I mean, I, I don't know what her involvement is in this story, but um, she's been publishing documents um, for about the past six months or so um, that have added uh, um, more information to that story. Yeah, so um, I guess Jen's involvement would be, she's covered some similar stories about Steubenville, um, bringing up how claims of sexual assault have been ha handled on campus and things like that. So there is a connection. Um, and I believe in the fall, I don't know, I haven't talked to her about the details of this, but um, I know that she and some other um, Catholic media were leaked documents that were pertaining to um, the case. Uh, so one of those documents was the police report. Um, and another was a civil lawsuit, a draft of a civil lawsuit that was filed um, by the victim against the university and the friars um, and others involved uh, after his sentencing. Um, in this story, 
uh, in the parts that I read, um, you have a, a lot, which I mean, it's a lot like the other stories of clerical sexual abuse in the church. Um, you have, there, there's like two components of profound harm. The first is the abuse itself. Right. And then the second is the, there's kind of two components to it. The second is the cover up of that abuse or, and often along with that, the discrediting of the person of, of the survivor in the first place. Like there's this, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, and everything just compiles, it compiles for that individual and it compiles for everyone with, within that community. Um, so part of the information that has come out more recently had to do with um, who in leadership at the university um, had information about what was going on and didn't act, correct? Right. I think, um, yeah, I think about this a lot, what you were saying, like there's the primary abuse and crime, and that's like the first wave of shock and scandal that hits. Um, and then I think this is where the church stumbles so quickly is like, they don't see the, the second and the third wave that come. And it's, it starts with the cover up, you know, the immediate, um, yeah, just that immediate reaction. And then when you continue to dig in your heels and, you know, fight transparency and forthrightness, it's just, it's another blow of scandal. It's not the same thing as the, the original crime, but it's just, you know, it inflicts more wounds on everyone else in the pews. And that's what I was feeling among um, alumni who are just receiving this news and had never even been contacted by the university um, when this broke. Um, so we're taking it upon ourselves. You know, I'm calling up those women who I knew were in regular contact with Father Morier and asking them, you know, hey, we haven't talked in years, but did you know this happened? Are you okay? Um, and doing that work, you know, the university is sending us letters for like signing up for conferences and donating and not, hey, a priest who was on campus at this time with you, you know, has been charged, not just, you know, accused, but, but also charged. And pled um, guilty. Yeah. Um, so that was, yeah, that was just really frustrating. Um, I think, to go back to what you're saying, um, when he was sentenced after he pled guilty, um, this woman did get up and she read her victim impact statement. Um, and in it, she, you know, she said like but before she had come to police, she had tried to report it to numerous people in leadership at the university. Um, and that essentially she was rebuffed. She was accused of gossiping. Um, not only were they complicit, but, you know, actively tried to silence her. And so um, some of these documents, like the police report that was leaked, uh, you know, they verify that claim that she made in her statement. And that's, you know, that's the question that everyone wants to know is like, okay, we're, you know, this guy did, you know, heinous things. Um, that's not, you know, no one's doubting that, but, um, you know, who else, who else was involved and needs to be held accountable. And that's, I feel the disconnect is like, obviously we're answering, we're asking this question and um, 
the university. And I think a lot of times you see it in the church overall is just pretending that that question doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, or is unimportant um, yeah. as if, as if um, this type of abuse can happen within these institutions for this length of time without other people knowing, without other people um, actively or negligently like protecting this, uh, like protecting this, uh, this person and allowing this abuse to continue. Um, that's a really difficult thing. I mean, I, um, I didn't know the former um, president of Franciscan, Father Scanlon, but I know a lot of people who know him. And I know a lot of people who admire him um, in the way that someone would admire a saint. Um, oh, literally, like we would joke, but it was not really just a joke, you know, like if, I remember friends who were altar servers at the chapel, if they would serve with him after, you know, he would take off his vestments in the sacristy. This is so ridiculous that this happens in Steubenville. Like they would look and if he had like hair or something that had come off on the chasuble, you know, it would be a joke. Oh my God, you know, a future relic, but also not a joke, you know. But also not uh, a joke. Yeah. Um, And like, um, there's a podcast I've been listening to for years with, um, a couple of guys who are alums of Franciscan. And when Father Scanlon died, they had like a huge tribute to him and a mm -hmm. lot of um, brought in a lot of other people to share about their experiences with him. And this particular story, um, it certainly cast a shadow over his legacy and like his personal holiness. It does because um, it's very clear, like the police and the police report, especially um, that he knew about, well, that he, um, they call, he knew about the, these deliverance ministries. Um, he, it says, um, I think he had taken, you know, Father Moria was essentially his protege in, in praying over people in this way that he was present, I think at the first exorcism of this woman, um, her civil lawsuit um, claims that she told him the full scope of what Moyer was doing to her um, in terms of abuse. Uh, and yeah, I just wonder where was his judgment? Uh, this holy man who we looked to and you know assumed we'll see canonized someday. Um, yeah, I just don't know how to reconcile that. Yeah, it to me, it feels a lot like um, it. I mean, it feels a lot like looking at the legacy and holiness of Pope Benedict and St. John Paul II. And you look at things like, um, I mean, uh, Father Maciel with John Paul II. And you look at uh, the rise of Cardinal McCarrick through the ranks of John Paul II and Pope Benedict and numerous stories like that, where on one hand, there's the reality of, I mean, it seems like this person's holiness, um, it seems like that's obvious, but then also how does this, such a, such a huge blind spot to the point that it looks straight up like neglect, if not something mm -hmm. malicious, how does holiness and that exist at the same time? Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I don't know. To me, it I feel like it's even worse than trying to grapple with John Paul II and Benedict's legacies. Um, I can understand, and I don't know. I haven't been a direct victim of abuse, but I, you know, under forgive a blind spot. Um, but yeah, if he really um, dismissed her when she told him your guy raped me, that that is malicious, you know, that is, that's straight up evil. Um, and just this idea of, I don't know, see, assuming possession and like needs for exorcism when this person is like clearly, you know, mentally troubled and psychologically troubled. I just, it, it totally colors my, my idea of well, what was your vision of holiness and the spiritual life? Like if you saw, if you saw demons around every corner uh, and thought that this, this method of prayer was, was the way to, to exercise that. I don't know. Yeah. And, and didn't see, and didn't see a student in that position in the relationship that she had with um, her spiritual director and with the vulnerability of her own. Um, you, you said she had like, um, like a troubled life growing up. So I'm going to assume like the traumas that she brought with her into that, like not recognizing the vulnerability, like how vulnerable she was in giving deference to that vulnerability when hearing her story. Yeah. That sounds more than negligent. Yeah. Um, this also impacts um, because the current president of Franciscan who um, father Dave Pavanka who I have heard speak many times. I've used his resources many times. I've quoted him many times in different things that I've done. Um, he was also named um, in these documents and he also participated in some of these, some of these deliverance prayer sessions, didn't he? I don't know. I don't think he was named um, as being present in any of the sessions, but he is named in the, in the civil lawsuit as one of the people that she came to, um, and asked for help and, you know, was dismissed according to this lawsuit. So, yeah. And even, you know, just by his react, his, the university's response, uh, to, you know, their supporters and to alumni alone, like under his leadership, I've just, I agree. Like I was there um, on campus with Father Dave Pavanka. I went um, to Austria the first semester that he was there. I remember him praying over me uh, in Assisi. He was, you know, he was a rock star. Everyone loved him. And it's, it's very frustrating to just look at him and just wonder, like, is this just a willful ignorance of how you're, you know, you're, response is being received um is it intentional i don't know yeah um how do you this is much more of a personal question how do you view the university now um like my connection to the university is just the conferences now i say just like like i've said that was a huge part of my own mm -hmm. my own spiritual life but there's enough distance for me to be like i don't really ever have to have contact with franciscan university again 
I don't ever, if I don't want to, and I have some friends right. who went there, um, but I don't have an ongoing relationship. Um, but your like your experience is different. Like, how do you something that being a student there was really good for you? How do you balance that with the um, like the, the 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 implications of the truth that's out being revealed? Um, yeah, it's hard. Uh, I think we were talking earlier about, um, I guess, different camps that people fall into, or maybe when we were prepping for this interview and some people are like, you know, burn it all down. Uh, we want nothing to do with it. Uh, they might be in various stages of just shedding their faith because just the dissonance is too great. Um, and you don't know what to do. So you know, you got to walk away. Um, yeah, I, and I've been there. I've definitely like have empathized with that. Um, I don't know. It's hard to reconcile, you know, like we go to a parish where there are a lot of Steubenville grads. Um, one of our music ministers, um, who you also know, and ate shrimp kebabs with us <laughs> when you came over. Um, she'll often play, she was there the same years as me and sometimes she'll play like that type of song that you only heard at Steubenville. Um, and so I'll be there at mass and like immediately be brought back to, oh, this was the place where I was falling in love with the mass and in growing, you know, in my faith. And also at the same time, you know, like you're kneeling there trying to pray, you know, with these conflicting emotions. Um, and also I'm so angry. You know, um, yeah, it's a tension and it's hard. I don't know that I've um, come to resolve it very well. Um, but yeah, I think uh, just trying to find, yeah. I hear a lot of people saying like, I'm just trying to hold on. Yeah. Um, what do you do with that anger? What do I do with that anger? Um, well, uh, I realized at some point, like maybe last year, so maybe a year and a half after um, all this news came out. Um, I don't know what made me realize this, but I was like, I think every time I go to mass, I'm angry <laughs> and I'm angry about this. And that is a really, um, and it was kind of subliminal. Like I didn't think it had burrowed in that deep. Um, that's a heavy thing to carry. Uh, spiritually and emotionally. Um, you know, I'd go to mass and like, want to bust some kneecaps. Um, <laughs> just, I don't know. I think I've, I've learned that um, it's okay to bring that anger to the altar uh, and that I can carry it. Um, I remember in 2018, you know, when all those like scandals are coming out about McCarrick and in the, in the Pennsylvania grand jury report yeah. and all of that was hitting at once. Right. Um, I remember uh, Simca Fisher wrote a, an article and this was like the one thing that I keep going back to and I still remember. And um, I think the crux of it was like, Jesus is not an abuser. And, you know, she was saying like all these vile reactions that we're rightly feeling, you know, in the pit of our stomach, like that's natural and that's good. And 
you know, we were validated for feeling that. Um, but it's directed at at McCarrick. It's directed at at this the people who who wrought this evil, and that Jesus was not the abuser, um, and that he knows, like he weeps with us. And I, I I carry that a lot when I feel those when I feel those feelings. Yeah, I've had. Yeah, so, so for me in the past year, a little bit more, but especially in the past year, I've been confronted with leadership in my local in, in my local church. Um, yeah, and <laughs> trying to be somewhat vague and respectful in this, but like <laughs> leadership who I thought were good people, and then I had like conversations with them about, hey, there's this bad stuff going on, and the response being, well, that's not really important. Hmm. And then walking away and being like, how can you be a good person and a good leader and allow this yeah. harm to continue when yeah. you're the one responsible for it, right? And um, it's really, really difficult. And this is something this is something really insidious about spiritual abuse. There's a couple of components here that, that you touched on. One was um, the mass for Catholics yeah. is this place of profound healing and encounter with the Lord. It's supposed to be a place of healing and comfort and grace. But when abuse from the church, when harm from the church happens, this these places of comforted healing become places of harm and places where anxiety and anger and all these things are triggered. So now not only has my experience of these places that used to bring me comfort, not not only has that been distorted, but now the places where I would go would have gone for comfort in the first place are now off limits. Um, right. And then also, I believe 110% that Jesus is on the side of the of of those who've been abused, because um, he's always associated himself with those who were. Uh, with with the marginalized and the victims. He's always associated himself. And that he's not just on their side, but if someone has been harmed, he, he is present with them in a very real way that he is present in those who have been harmed. Like, I believe that to be true. But at the same time, when it's someone wearing a collar, someone who represents Jesus, someone who's a successor of the apostles, someone who so sacramentally like represents Jesus right. who's doing the harm and then covering things up and perpetuating the harm. Um, it, it, at times it's difficult to believe that Jesus is on the side of the, of, of the person who was harmed and not, right. and, and not the abuser. Or even, yeah. Looking at, Wondering how how could you have done so much good if yeah I, it reminds me of um so one of the people who are mentioned in the police report was the friar who was the provincial of um, the third order regular you know Franciscan community that Moria was a part of and that um, they run Franciscan University um, and I knew this priest uh, his name is Father Richard Davis. Um, and he, he was notified, he knew the full extent of, 
you know, spiritual abuse, sexual abuse. Um, and the response was, well, we got to get him out of here. We got to not, you know, we have to keep her quiet. So we'll, we'll give her a settlement to sign as long as she doesn't, you know, retain a lawyer. Um, she can't mention abuse outside of therapy, which by the way is provided by the school. So we keep it all, we keep it all, you know, in this tight circle. And he, yeah, he signed off on this. And this priest, I remember my senior year, one of my friends um, died very suddenly um, after like a flu outbreak on campus. And there was a memorial mass for her. It was packed, um, like, you know, overflowing standing room. And the same priest um, said the homily for that mass. And I went back recently and I like went through I was working for the student paper, so I had written an article about this. And I found the article about the homily that he had given, and it was perfect. You know, it was exactly what this community needed, what her family needed. It was beautiful. And and yeah, I think my immediate reaction again was just this like flaming white anger and bewilderment. Like, how could you have been so perfectly, you know, the what we needed? you know, the, the conduit of grace that, that we needed in that moment, and then turn around a couple of years later and do this to this other woman. Uh, yeah. How can both of those things be true? Yeah. And it, and they are. And they are. Um, after, after the summer of 2018 and, and, and McCarrick and the Pennsylvania grand jury report, Bishop Barron wrote, um, he wrote a few things about the abuse scandal in the church and there's, there's one thing he wrote that the first paragraph made me really angry because he was like, he's 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 like, this is demonic. And because the church is so good, it's especially, you know, targeted by evil. And I'm like, don't be blaming us on evil spirits. And then and then he's like, this his second paragraph was something like, um, I know a lot of you are hearing me as blaming us on evil spirits. That's not what I mean. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the article is pretty good. Who was? I'm sorry, I missed. Who said uh, that? Uh, Bishop Barron. Barron, okay. Um, and I forget which article it was. He's he's written several things on this, but something that's been really clarified for me over the past year or so is that um, I would I would articulate the particularly insidious spirit in the church um, around abuse is, and this was something that. Gloria Purvis talked about in a podcast a while ago. She had a guest on um, and she referenced that. So the church has a teaching on the uh, we there, we give a preferential option to the poor, right? If mm -hmm. someone's poor and marginalized, we ought to give yeah. them preferential treatment. The phrase she used was the church has a preferential option for the institution. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and she said that and it was like light bulbs went off. I'm like, that's it. If we're going to name the spirit, that's the spirit where somehow leadership in the church are able to look past uh, the harm that's being done and and still preference um, the security of the institution. Yeah, I think it's a it's a spirit of pride and fear and like an inability to see beyond, yeah, just a very narrow vision of what what I need to protect and what has been there for me uh, and not to see who is outside that range, you know, and it's just like, 
it's like the good Samaritan, like who's falling on the side of the road. And we're just like, you know, I'm going to go keep going to this direction. And there's people dying and bleeding out. Yeah. And people who will continue to, to be harmed and bleeding out as yeah. long as, yeah. Um, so I'll say, like you were talking about, um, I don't know. Yeah. We we're talking about institutions, protecting the institutions and something that kind of, I don't know, was a bomb to me. It was around this time that I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to mass every single day. Like just so angry. I ended up talking to a priest that I did trust on this issue. Um, I had a feeling he would get it, but I was still kind of bracing myself for like the trite responses. I feel like we usually get like, um, well, the church is full of sinners, you know, or like, well, we're all human or, um, yeah. As if, as if the the sins that I commit are equal to like sexual abuse and institutional cover up. Sure. And yes, I, I am, yeah, I am a sinner, sure, <laughs> like, that's not what, or, you know, um, well, we don't put our trust in people, we only, you know, this is why we trust in Jesus, not, and so I was kind of bracing myself for that, even though I felt like I could trust him to not say it, um, but he was just like, yeah, this does, this wounds our faith, this does damage, and just him saying that, honestly, like, I realized how off, how I rarely hear that acknowledged, Um I think you're expected to um, just be able to like kind of get back up and and if you struggle, then you're you know you must be a worse Catholic. Uh, and then he said, um, it was like no institution or organization is worth protecting at the expense of transparency and full honesty. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I have never. It just hearing that, like it's it's obvious. But I just realized, like, you know, the contrast of hearing it from one priest and never hearing it yeah. from from other pulpits or or from the hierarchy, like where I don't see that kind of moral backbone and and will to to follow it up with actions anywhere. Yeah, we had we had Mark Shea on the podcast last year, and he made a point that has stuck with me since he was talking about Vatican II. And he said, all the bishops of the world got together. And in one of the teaching documents, they say, um, and it was a just a, a really profound and essential teaching that human beings are the only creatures um, uh, who exist for no other purpose. Like they, like, um, they are their own end. They have value in and of themselves. Um, he said, and then these bishops, so many of them go back to their own diocese and spend decades um, not putting the individual person first, but um, using them as shields to protect the institution. Um, when he's like, when the reality of that teaching is that businesses, uh, economies, political parties, and institutions are to serve the good of the human person, not the other way around. So we have this profound like hypocrisy within the church, within like what she teaches, which is profoundly beautiful. Human beings are ends in and of themselves and institutions should be serving the good of the persons. And there's no institution worth protecting that is for uh, to diminish that to diminish the dignity of the human. Like you don't protect the institution, you protect the person. 
Um, and we failed so miserably since then. And I feel like we're only beginning to see the fallout of that, of that hypocrisy. In the mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times people try to get around it by saying, no, you know, we weren't, this was bad. You know, this was the, I, I see a, a mentality to try to pin it all on, well, there was one bad actor in the past and, you know, we, we're so sorry. And we, we, you know, completely condemn what he did back then, but no, yeah, no acknowledgement of everything else in this culture that allowed it to happen. And that is still continuing. Like if the longer you prolong this and don't, you know, shine the light of transparency on it, the longer you're, you're perpetuating that culture. And that's what I don't see is like the willingness to address this stuff over there. Everyone's in agreement that, you know, abuse is bad, but what are you going to do about it? Yeah. So, um, I, I wanted to talk with you and have this conversation because this story out of Franciscan feels like um, a microcosm of the Catholic Church as a whole. And that's come out in our discussion as we've talked about this. Um, a good friend of mine and ministry partner, um, Monica Pope, she's in the past several years especially been, um, and not really by choice, just by, hmm. I guess, by providence, has begun accompanying um, um, clerical abuse survivors. And she's talked with me about the need to have a third space. And what she means is that, um, like you had mentioned earlier, we tend to fall in camps when something like this happens, when something, when abuse and scandal happen in the church. Either it's burn the whole thing down, it's all bad, or defend the institution at all costs. Mm -hmm. um, but neither of those are good enough. Um, and really neither of those are honest or truthful or real. Um, and what I heard in your article from a couple of years ago, and what I've heard in, in our friendship and the things we've talked about in, in this discussion is that you're able, is that you're able to navigate this third space of like, um, I can be really, really angry and justly so, and not want to burn the whole thing down because I still see some good, but also, I have no more interest in defending this institution. Um, so yeah, how, does that resonate with you? Um, yeah, it. Uh, you mentioned Monica to me earlier and it just kind of reinforced uh, my desire to meet her and talk to her too. So <laughs> hi, Monica, if you're listening, <laughs> like, should have coffee. Um, I don't know, I'm just trying to figure that third space out. Uh, something I've been thinking of over maybe the past year is, um, just to cling to the vine however you can. And if it if it means letting go of all of the, you know, the Franciscan University culture and all the things that, you know, were a part of that, if, if you can't go and seek Christ through those things anymore, then fine, like cut it away. Um, if it means clinging to the vine by going to it, I don't know. By reading different books or doing different devotions or finding different friends um, who understand, then then cling that way and you know for for all all your life basically. Uh, yeah, and sometimes it's been um, it's it, I found surprising 
ways that I've been able to to hold on. Um, part of it is like my kids go to our parish school and they go to school mass like three times a week. And I started going and it was just for me, it was a, a really healing experience just to like sit there in the back and listen to these little children sing, um, you know, songs like Oh Come and Come Emmanuel. Um, Which is the best. It would, it would just make me cry because I'm like, this is, you know, going up to the altar. I just, I just wanted the stripped down simplicity of, of why I'm still Catholic, which is to go to the altar and receive Jesus. And, and so many things get in the way and, um, yeah, we'll mar that experience, but, but not those kids at that moment. Like when they come home and they're in my van or whatever, then they'll like, that's a different story. But, you know, they, I don't like their simple faith. Like I would say lifted mine for like a good amount of a year. Um, I don't know, seeking things out like that. And no matter how silly or, I don't know, minor it may seem, if it keeps you afloat, then, yeah. then hold on to it. Yeah. I, I liked your point about being okay with letting go of the aspects of Catholicism. Um, if you feel like you need to, um, my experience of the past year was, has kind of been the opposite where I used to go to mass three or four times a week and I only go now and for like for about the past year, I've only, I pretty much only gone when I've been obligated to, mm -hmm. um, but I've encountered the Lord in really profound and fruitful ways. Um, and in, in, in praying at home, um, yeah. which isn't uh, putting down of the mass is not important, but as a, my spiritual life had to change based on my experiences in the church. Yeah. And recognizing, okay, what, what draw me, what drew me close to God then and isn't giving me life now. And just because of something, you know, a devotion is good. It doesn't mean it's, you know, it's integral to Catholicism. Like you have to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we are coming up on an hour. Um, you, you, you talked about um, earlier having a conversation with a priest who you were pretty sure was going to respond well, but not in not 100% positive. And you talked about some of the, um, uh, I guess for lack of a better word, uh, trite responses that we often give, that I've certainly given in the past. Mm -hmm when people have talked about the scandal that they're experiencing because of uh, abuse and cover up in the church. Um, Don't you know how often <laughs> it happens in like public schools or <laughs> like how the church has improved? Like... Yep. You're missing the point. Oh. Um, <laughs> so I respond to people differently now, I guess um, maybe as we wrap up, um, how do you respond to people now when when someone else brings up their experience in those in those topics? And um, how would you encourage listeners to um, and not and not with and, and not with judgment? Like I 
can't tell you how many times I've given those, I've given those responses. My, yeah. Um, and they uh, made sense to me at a certain point. I yeah. absolutely believed them. Um, but yeah, what, what encouragement can you give listeners to um, maybe rethink some of those, some of those responses when other people bring that up? Um, yeah. And this wasn't know, on our outline. Just, I'm just, I'm yeah. just throwing this question at you. I think just thinking about how a certain response impacted me and immediately just made me feel validated. I would just say first acknowledge, acknowledge the wound um, in the cause of it. And, you know, just, just affirm their suffering and the, the reason for it. And I think even just sitting with that and not trying to solve it or explain it goes a long way. Absolutely. Liz, this has been a really good discussion. Um, Dominic, you have, you've hardly said a <laughs> word. Do you have anything to add? I just had a lot to think about and take in. No, I don't, I don't have much to add other than uh, a lot, a lot resonated coming out of, out of my background. Um, let's, uh, listeners to the show might know a lot of radical traditionalism, uh, a lot of mm -hmm. kind of cult-like mentalities. Um, so there are some stories of abuse back in there, rumors that I've heard of that I never really dug into. And a lot of this sounds unfortunately familiar. And uh, I'm grateful for conversations like this or for creating a space where we can have these kinds of conversations um, because we're desiring to be faithful in spite of the Judases that are out there or find a way forward in spite of the reality of these uh, these failings. Um, yeah. not, not like you've, you know, pointed out, not ignoring them or brushing them under the rug, but recognizing them uh, and, and uh, finding a way forward. So, and, and still hanging on to the good. Yeah. Still looking for the good without, without whitewashing the problem. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you, Liz. Liz, is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap up? Oh, I think that's it. Excellent. Dominic, you want to take us away? Sure thing. Well, thanks again, Liz, for 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 joining us, friends. If you um, uh, enjoyed this this conversation, if it resonated with you, hit that like button. Uh, hit the like button. It does help more people to hear Liz's message, to discover this show. It helps the YouTube algorithm, you know, uh, share this with more people. And and hey, you know, if you're enjoying these conversations, we would absolutely love to meet you and hang out. Yeah, you can. Uh... If you like these conversations and like and want to go further, you can check out Father's Heart Academy, which is a community for folks looking for more compelling to the compelling answers to their questions about the faith, um, and who are looking for a more authentic gospel and to dive into what the church actually teaches, and not folks' opinions on that. Yeah, I'm really excited that Paul and I have been working on getting. Well, he's been doing the work. I've been helping him, but um, getting this academy off the ground—it's—it's it's really this. I've enjoyed every conversation over the last couple of seasons with Paul, and now there's others have been asking. You know, <laughs> we want our two cents or our two minutes with Paul. So you can get that chance to meet with Paul regularly, discuss recent podcasts like this one or current events in the church. Um, there are there are upcoming seminars. There are workshops on specific topics and magisterial documents. There's a lot that Paul is putting into building this Father's Heart Academy. So you should come and check it out at fathersheartacademy.com. Uh, Paul, if our friends have a question or feedback on this podcast and they're not yet ready for the Academy, where can they go? Yeah, our host for this podcast is Pope for Generation.com. 
There you go. PopeFrancisGeneration.com. You can't forget it. And like I said, we'd love to meet you. Come and hang out with us and Smart Catholics. It's the free online community for Catholic millennials, creators, and learners who want faithful conversations, unafraid of doubts and questions. Plus, we're free of trolls and ads and, and uh, toxicity. So join us at smartcatholics.com. <laughs> Till next time, say a short prayer for yourself and for us. And remember, don't be afraid to ask questions. Doubts can be a sign that we want to know God better and more deeply. God bless you. <laughs>